We did not destroy the Clothos, and you are well aware of it, Commander. Surely you don't expect me to believe she just vanished. I do not accept this. Frankly, Commander, what you accept is of little importance to me. Enterprise out. Bridge to all debts. It's time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morrison. I feel that we're in a totally new kind of pocket universe that's very different from where we usually record. You might even say, Steve, that we are trapped. <laughs> but at least in this case, we are in very good company because for our deep dive of the animated series episode, The Time Trap, we are very, very excited to be joined because, Steve, this is, I don't know if you realize this, this is our 100th episode of Enterprise Incidents. Wow. Steve. Wow. We've reached the century mark. That we've, is a big deal. We've reached the century mark. I think we're going to go into syndication. I think we got enough episodes <laughs> in the can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where the real money rolls in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but we are so grateful to all of the enterprisers who have supported Enterprise Incidents for all of this time to get us to the 100th episode. And we are very, very excited to be joined by an artist, a storyboard artist, a, a designer who has worked on animated shows like Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle, He-Man, and the Masters of the Universe, Dungeons and Dragons, Flash Gordon, Muppet Babies, and of course, Star Trek, the animated series. Welcome aboard Enterprise Incidents, Bob Klein. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be aboard. Well, we love the animated series. So many people who have been listening to Enterprise Incidents, they were so excited when we we announced that we were going to move forward after moving on from the original series to the animated series, really treating it like the fourth season of the original show. So the question, the first question for you is, how did you come to be a part of Star Trek, the animated series? Uh, the person I have to thank uh, the most first is Mark Evanier, uh, famous uh, comics scholar, and uh, he wrote uh, uh, some stories uh, for for me to illustrate. And um, we were friends. We talked on the phone uh, on a regular basis back in uh, 71, 72, 73 because we had this mutual interest, and he was aware of my comics fan art. Anyway, in talking one day, he said, uh, by the way, over at Filmation, they're doing <laughs> Star Trek. You ought to grab your stuff and go over there and, and see if you can get on board. And this was in March of 73, and they were underway sort of. They'd written scripts and so on. And uh, uh, I, uh, I took my portfolio and I went into um, uh, the offices there and uh, they sent me to Don Christensen, who was the art director. And I showed him my, it was mostly fan art that I had done for comics fandom of, of monsters and spaceships and so on. And uh, he, uh, he said, uh, well, when can you start? <laughs> <laughs> That's simple, huh? It's the best kind of interview. <laughs> and I did the next day. And uh, they put me in, in uh, an office with uh, George Jensen, who was a well-known designer for live action, having worked on things like uh, 
close encounters of the third kind and stuff like that, doing pre-production art. And so we hit it off right away because he knew uh, about all the stuff that I knew about, too. So uh, we shared that office, and unbelievably, uh, our animation desks still had old crank pencil sharpeners attached to them. That's how long ago it was. Uh, I did buy uh, an automatic pencil sharpener first thing, though. That's high class when you could get the automatic pencil sharpener. <laughs> yeah. um, you mentioned uh, fan art. What, what kind of fan art were you doing, and where were you doing it? Uh, well, uh, in 67, uh, in I uh, was um, pulled into the Air Force, uh, much to the uh, help of my, uh, my father, who was uh, a Navy guy in World War II, and... Uh, he helped me get in because it was really hard to get into the Air Force back then. They were drafting people into the Army and the Marines and stuff like that uh, so they could go out and fight. And, of course, that wasn't a good idea for me. I'm way too big, too much of a target to begin with, and too left feet. And so, you know, no warrior me. But as it turned out, I was able to enlist and uh, volunteer in the Air Force, and they took me. And uh, I was able to get uh, an artist specification so that I could uh, work in offices and draw pictures for four years, which is pretty amazing. The last two and a half years of the four-year hitch, I was on Airman Magazine. And um, I had access to things like accurate photocopiers that were the size of a Volkswagen and stuff like that. And um, while I was there, I learned about comic fan magazines. And I started contacting the different fan magazines and submitting my drawings to them uh, and comic book stories and so on. And I was doing work for the Rockets Blast comic collector. I did work for, uh, with Jan Stranod, if you've heard of him. Uh, his uh, fan magazine was Anomaly. He wrote a lot of stuff for Richard Corbin to illustrate. Famous Richard Carbon. There's uh, an anomaly underground comic, which was maybe the fifth uh, issue of uh, Anomaly, and um, uh, it ha- it's half Corbin and half me. And then later on, we did Sternod and I did some more stories and stuff. The first couple of stories I did for Anomaly, I wrote myself, and uh, it's all like science fiction and fantasy because my three heroes for years were Wally Wood and Frazetta and Williamson. And so I was doing my best to be one of those, (laughs) if not all of them rolled together. So I did a lot of stuff and I met people like Bernie Wrightson and Mike Luda and uh, I didn't meet John Buscema but I met Sal Buscema (laughs) and so I learned more and more about what it was like uh, to be a comic book artist. And it was, it was wonderful fun because uh, uh, we were all so serious about it. You know, we really, this is what we really wanted to do. But what I learned more and more as time went by is there's no, um, you know, it's worse than having to go to Las Vegas and make your fortune than make money, middle class money, as a, as a comic book artist. Particularly back then. So I did a bunch of that from uh, 
oh, about 67, 68, 69, uh, on through till uh, getting out of the service and going back to school on the GI Bill, but I still kept contributing uh, to things like the Rocket Splash Comic Collector and Jan Stranod's Anomaly and uh, stuff like that. So um, that's why I had a fairly professional-looking, respectable portfolio to show to Don Christensen when I went to Filmation. But I had already, you know, flirted with the idea of that kind of a career back when I was in junior high school. I, there was a, a requirement to do a report and a whole project on a possible career that you would pursue. And because my mom was friends with Claude Coates' wife, I was able to go to Disney, see all of the animation efforts at work back when I was still a, a youngster. Claude Coates had been pulled back from WED at that time and was working in the animation building at an office where he was painting backgrounds for Sleeping Beauty at the, you know, the last backgrounds right. that needed to be done. And he invited me out to his house and, you know, that whole thing. So animation looked wonderful. I loved animation. I loved Disney. Uh, my whole Disney thing was the maximum drama things that Wolfgang Reitherman animated, the dinosaurs, uh, Monstro the Whale, uh, you know. That stuff is what I loved about animation, and there was so little of it. When you come full circle back to my design aesthetic for the aliens and the creatures in um, TAS, it's all based on what I loved about those cartoons. The dinosaurs in Fantasia, for instance, were totally really inform how I designed the aliens for Star Trek. So those pterodactyls, you know, that's... And, and, the, and yeah. the sea serpent and the dragons and right. all of that stuff. The basic aesthetics that they use to simplify and create those creatures and still have them look dramatic and not goony. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, you know, most of the guys that draw for animation... They're not in love with creatures and monsters and stuff. They'll do what they have to do, and they'll reference stuff. But for me, it was always a matter of, this is what I want to see. <laughs> so it's 67, 68, 69, of course, are, are some of the years when the original Star Trek series was being broadcast in first run on NBC TV. Right. So when you came aboard yeah. the animated series... Because, you know, your work, your art, your storyboards, your, your, especially when it came to the aliens in the spaceships, yeah. you must have, I'm assuming, watched the original series. Oh, of course. And uh, uh, I got to see it before I left for the service uh, and then continued to see it uh, there, living in the uh, uh, barracks, uh, which were really like college dorms for the most part. Uh, and they'd have a common room where they had the TV, and nobody missed Star Trek. My God, when you're in the Air Force? That's <laughs> yeah, just yeah. nuts. <laughs> uh, although the other show nobody missed was um, George of the Jungle. Hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm curious. So you start you start at Filmation, you got your desk, you got your electric pencil sharpener. Yeah. What were your responsibilities when you first started off working there? 
Well, the very first thing they gave me to do was that first episode that we did, uh, Beyond the Farthest Star, uh, required uh, uh, a spaceship unlike any you'd ever seen before. And um, Gene Roddenberry was okaying this design. Well, they didn't give the design to anybody but me. And I did literally 100 different designs before he okayed that watermelon on the vines thing. Hmm. <laughs> which which uh, is unique. It's not like any spaceship that had been seen before or perhaps even since. I don't think so. Well, as it turns out, some of the designs that you did do for Beyond the Far the Star, the, the ones that didn't make it into that episode, wound up making it into the one we're talking about today. And we'll, we'll get into that. But uh, so let's talk, talk a little more about, about your experience working with Roddenberry. And also, uh, if you have any thoughts about Dorothy Fontana, who was the story editor and, you know. Well, Dorothy Fontana was my hero. <laughs> I just, uh, you know, wonderful person. And she was very receptive to me and my ideas and my input and wanted to hear it. So she literally came to the off to my specific office uh, two or three times over the course of the show, and uh, we chatted and and so forth. And it was nice to be consulted to some degree, uh, even though I wasn't writing on the show or anything. Uh, on the other hand, <clears throat> I only saw Gene Roddenberry once, and that was at Lou Scheimer's house for the rap party for the first season. And I shook his hand, and I said, it's a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> and uh, that was that. But yeah, Dorothy, Dorothy, not only is she my hero, I feel like she was uh, the major driving force behind this thing. Not that Roddenberry was detached, really. I just don't think he was as hands-on and, and, and present, uh, because God knows he's working on lots of other things <laughs> at the same time. So, but I think she really took this whole thing seriously, and I credit her with the quality of the show. I'm curious, so as, as we move on through the season, were you doing mostly design work on ships and things like that, or were you doing, did you have other responsibilities? It's whatever they decided they needed me for. So it started, and my career ended up being like this, many hats, doing all the different things. As they got to know me, they knew they got to learn what I could do and what I was capable of, and so they cast me for certain things. And uh, it was designing characters. It was designing uh, locations. It was uh, doing hardware uh, not that other people didn't do some of that, but uh, often I was given that uh, responsibility, and it was it was delightful, and I couldn't believe my good fortune because most of the people at Filmation then were old hands. They'd been work they worked on Gulliver's Travels at Fleischer, you know. Right. They uh, these were guys that had been around for decades. And unfortunately, some of them were a little on the burned outside, but it was great. It was great. And Christensen, Don Christensen and I hit it off from the beginning, and we spent a lot of time uh, socializing in addition to um, uh, work and um, found that a lot of our thinking was the same. So 
that's why he would turn to me when he needed certain things done. Because most of the artists there were not super geeks like I was. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing you are. Well, one thing, one thing we've talked about throughout, while there are limitations on the animation due to budget and schedules and things like that, the thing we've commented on over and over again is how great the design work is. Well, thank you so yeah. much. I, I was so excited, obviously, first job in animation, and for it to be Star Trek. I mean, how lucky can you get? And so I was very serious about it. And the interesting thing is that uh, another influence beside Disney and the other animated things that I loved, primary influence was uh, Fleischer Superman cartoons from the 40s. They're so great. And I remember seeing those when I was like five, six, seven years old on Sheriff John's Lunch Brigade here in town. And um, just blew me away. Uh, I, I I thought, why isn't there tons more animation like this? Because it's <laughs> totally. so amazing. But at that time, when I was seeing the finished product in my head while I was doing the drawings that needed to be done and then the designs and so forth, that was one of the primary things that was in the front of my mind. I wanted to see Star Trek look like that, have that same level of drama and excitement visually. You know, on that note, Bob, yeah. what was it like to go through, like you're getting the scripts, you're reading the scripts, and start to sort of visualize what you're reading? What are some of the memories that you have of reading some of the scripts and, and some of the things that came to your mind for the designs of the things that we would eventually see in the finished show? There was an, a part of me that was taking it for granted because of the people that were wanting to make this show. I mean, Dorothy and, and the other Star Trek people. And I was just, well, of course this is good. And of course this is what it should be. And uh, why doesn't Filmation or all the other Saturday morning outfits do stuff more like this? I was having a hard time reconciling that. But at the same time, reading those scripts, the way they were written made it so much easier for me to get pumped up and excited every single day I worked on the show. As a result, the stuff that you see that I am responsible for uh, is the best I could do at the time. I was just that focused on the whole thing. So as you're, you know, you're getting these scripts and you're, you're starting to have concept designs for going through the process... What was the process? Let's say you, you get the script for the time trap. So what were, the, what were the steps that you would go through until we got to the finished product? What you have to understand, in addition to the basic steps for animation, is that there was also a scattershot quality to the whole thing because of the time factor. We were turning these things out so quickly that you were putting out fires. You were getting things done as they were needed rather than following strictly the, the rule of the assembly line. And um, sometimes you'd work off of things that Hal Sutherland had done on the storyboard. Sometimes you were doing stuff ahead of the storyboarding so that he would have something to work with. And... Um, Sometimes they'd suddenly realize that they needed this background element. I hadn't even gotten there, so I leaped forward to do that. And it was kind of 
scattershot. Now, the basic animation uh, process is the same thing that's uh, been pointed out by Disney and Walter Lance and their TV shows over the years. And it's those same series of, of steps that we generally followed in order to get the work done. But there was a lot of this leapfrogging back and forth as well. Obviously, the script comes first. Uh, the recording is done early on. It may not be done before the storyboard. The thing about Filmation's process was that the storyboarding included as much uh, same-as material that they called stock uh, that they could shove into it in order to save time and money. As the storyboard was done, layouts would be done. Layouts involved uh, full-size uh, background drawings, as well as p character posing, how the characters are going to uh, act in that scene, generally based on the storyboard. And you would assemble things by making copies for certain layouts because it would be a stock background with a stock head on it. And uh, so there was a lot of that. But as a layout person, you had to create the file for that. Then that would uh, go to cleanup artists who were in layout, who would do clean drawings of um, the animation characters. Uh, they generally didn't do clean drawings of the backgrounds because they weren't really necessary for uh, the background painters. And then um, uh, animators would get the file with you know, the layout drawings. They would uh, do the key drawings for the animation, uh, or they would just write on their uh, exposure sheets uh, how the mouth would move and when the eyes would blink and the head turn and all that stuff that was already uh, there in terms of elements, uh, cells, and, and backgrounds. When that was completed and cleaned up, those drawings would get Xeroxed of the characters and hardware and so on. And then uh, uh, once the cleaned up drawings were Xeroxed on cells, they would go to the ink and paint department where they would fill in on the backs of the cells the paint, just like in the olden days. And then uh, there would be a certain amount of inking with co a colored paint of uh, uh, usually effects like flames and stuff laser beams and so on. And then that stuff, once it was completed and the artwork was all completed, the file would go to a camera and, and those elements would be shot in the proper order uh, following the uh, exposure sheets where the big long uh, pieces of paper with uh, a line for every frame of film and, and, uh, and the uh, director's and the animators would write on the exposure sheets what needed to happen at all of those uh, places along the way. And then that exposed film would go to Technicolor, the only time any of the stuff left the building <laughs> and get processed. And when it came back, uh, it would get cut together the way it's supposed to go. And it's a fairly easy editing process because the thing's already been edited in storyboard and by the uh, animation directors. Uh, so they cut the thing together, and they uh, add the previously recorded uh, voices, and they add the sound effects, and they add the pre-recorded music. And there's a music editor that places the music, because it's already been done. 
most television shows back then were done that way. You'd have a library of music for that show, and that's where you would pull all the music. And then every once in a while, if there was a show that was so out of the library that they had to record new music, that would happen, but rarely on Star Trek. So... I am excited to have you on for this show, not only because it's our 100th, because I got to tell you, Steve, the time trap, I really like this episode. <laughs> me too. Me too. I really did too. Tell me what you thought. I was, you know, the, the, the complaints I've had about some of the animated series of like things not making sense and being confusing or being rushed or focusing on elements of the story that were less interesting. This is a tight beginning, middle and end story that makes sense throughout. It has good Star Trek themes. Characters make interesting choices. I think it's all well done. I completely agree. Uh, the pacing of this episode reminded me of the pacing of like the Doomsday Machine from the live action show, the original series. It just like went by very, very quickly. It didn't let up for a moment. Uh, all of our characters, Steve and Bob, I think are acting, are, are behaving right on point with the way they would behave on the original show. This felt like a great episode of Star Trek to me, and it was very exciting. I love what we call now, we call them Easter eggs, because, you know, I'm saying this just as uh, we're getting through season three of Star Trek Picard, which has a lot of what we like to call fan service, but... It's done in a way that fits the story so it works. And even for an episode of the animated series that aired in 1973, there is a lot of fan service, especially when you get to the council, you know, in the other universe. I'm like, oh, my God, there's the Gorn. That's so awesome. So that was very, very exciting. But, Bob, when you went back to rewatch The Time Trap, yeah. what did you think of it? It's interesting because I'm going to tell you what I thought of it, and I'm going to tell you what my wife thought of it. Please mm. do. Because, because she's married to me, she had to come on board for Star Trek. And um, it's the one thing I'm forcing her to watch over the years, <laughs> and that's 43 years. <laughs> but um, uh, we sat down to watch it, and uh, when it was over, she said, Wow, that was really good. That was just like one of the old original episodes. It made lots of sense, and it fit nicely within the half hour. Just as a side note on the half hour, I love half hour drama. <laughs> I find it fascinating that it's kind of gone by the wayside. Yeah. I mean, there's some half hour dramedies where there's a dramatic core and a lot of comedy, but... I mentioned Have Gun, Will Travel. Have Gun, Will Travel was one of the very best TV shows. And um, it was Twilight a half Zone. hour. It was always a half hour. Yeah, the Twilight Zone's yeah. another one. Yeah, Twilight Zone. Oh, my God. Well, there's two uh, that just are amazing. So, anyway, I enjoyed it very much. I was surprised by some things. Uh, but in terms of the story, as you both say, uh, yeah, fine, excellent. What were you surprised about? I was surprised that my memory was telling me that the Klingon ship and the Enterprise had to be attached top to top. In other words, one of the oh. ships I thought was flipped over oh. in my memory. Now, you know, we're talking 50 years ago, so <laughs> I wonder, not surprising. I wonder if you drew it and then that ended up not making it in the show, because I think that's a cooler idea than that's the way possible. they did it. That's very possible. Um, I just don't know. I don't remember. 
And actually, maybe Aaron uh, Harvey has one of those pictures because he's got all that artwork now. Aaron Harvey, lovely, lovely man. Yeah. He he and uh, Ron wrote the book, you know, the animated yeah. uh, the animated series. And and a big thanks to Aaron Harvey because he's the reason why we're sitting here talking with you. So Aaron Harvey, if you are listening, we owe this all to you. And we are dedicating the time trap to you. The time trap, of course, directed by Hal Sutherland, who directed all the episodes of the first season. Uh, production number for this episode was 22010, making it, in effect, the 10th episode of the animated series to, to go into production. Of course, they were doing a lot of that stuff at the same time. The Time Trap aired on November 24th, 1973, which made it the 91st episode of Star Trek to air. Of course, that's including all the original series episodes as well. The Time Trap was written by Joyce Perry. Now, Joyce Perry is an Emmy nominee, a daytime Emmy nominee for Days of Our Lives. She also wrote for TV shows like Ironside, Room 222. I loved that show when I was growing up. Land of the Lost, Eight is Enough, The Waltons, and Fantasy Island. Now, when it came to writing The Time Trap for Gene Roddenberry, Joyce Perry said, quote, I had this idea that a Klingon ship and the Enterprise would get trapped in a Saragossa Sea of space and be forced to cooperate to escape. I remember telling Gene Roddenberry this bizarre notion that the two ships could combine engines and become more powerful as one than they were separately. I explained it with a straight face, but was afraid he might laugh, laugh me out of his office. Instead, he was quiet for, for about 30 seconds, and then he said, that's pretty good. Do it. <laughs> nice. the, the first draft of the time trap was submitted on August 26th, 1973. The final draft of the time trap was submitted on October 19th, 1973. So as you said, it aired on November 24th, 1973. Have Did either of you in the 70s go to see a show called Laserium? I heard about it, but I never saw it. Was it at the uh, observatory? It was. I did. It was, I remember going to see it in the late 70s, and it was up because I'm from San Francisco, and it was in Golden Gate Park at the uh, planetarium there. The very first Laserium premiered at the Griffith Park Observatory on November 19th, 1973. On November 20th, not the strongest Charlie Brown episode of television, a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving air, <laughs> yeah, which is okay. sort of, yeah. it's not the best one. <laughs> This story is fantastic, and maybe you already knew this story. I did not, which is The Who was playing the Cow Palace, which is in San Francisco, in my where I'm from, and Keith Moon, the drummer, maybe had a little bit too much to drink. He was on a mix of horse tranquilizers and whiskey, <laughs> and uh, he fell down in the middle of the concert, then managed to rouse himself, drank some more brandy, and at which point he said something to the effect of, and excuse my language, but he says, I can take it. I'm Keith <laughs> Moon. <laughs> Great. Then proceeds to completely pass out. <laughs> now, uh, the Who is without a drummer, and Pete Townsend yells in, and now asks into the audience, Can anyone play the drums? We need someone really good. <laughs> and a young 19 year old drummer from Muscatine, Iowa, named Scott Halpin gets up on stage, and finishes the concert with The Who. That is amazing. Wow. That is, I, wow. I knew the basics of the story that he said, can anybody play the drums? <laughs> and, I, and I just go like, first of all, it's on YouTube. So you can go see it. 
It's not, you know, it's pretty bad footage, but but it's still pretty cool to watch. And I go, it's The Who. The Who is not, like, they're musically, they're going for it. So you got a lot to keep up with Pete Townsend. You got a lot you got to be able to do. And I just thought that was a fantastic story. So I have always cherry-picked in the most sort of random way. You know, every week there's someone, people who were born and people who died. And most of the time I don't bring it up. And I only tend to bring it up when it's someone who specifically means something to me. And one of them is on November 20th, Alan Sherman died. Do you know who Alan Sherman is? No. Yeah. Hello, Mudda. Hello, Fada. Hello, Mudda. Hello, Fada. Oh, wow. So I listen, I listen to those albums obsessively. I loved comedy albums. And I was the obnoxious nine-year-old kid who got up to perform, even though I didn't have much of a singing voice. And I had memorized three albums of Alan Sherman songs. Wow. I absolutely loved him. Up until I discovered Tom Lair, who is one of the great geniuses of all time, the greatest singing comedian, you know, period, who I still listen to. But Alan Sherman died. He was only 48. Oh, wow. And died of emphysema. Um, and the, the other person that died uh, the next day is Sesu Hayakawa, star of Bridge on the River Kwai, who was a famous, who's Japanese and was a famous silent film star up until talkies happened. And then his career gets killed because he has a heavy accent and comes back for Kwai. And that performance in that film is astounding. Yes, absolutely. Um, One of the greats. Yeah. And the other thing that happened is, you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, the war in the Middle East and that Japan, under a lot of pressure from the Arab nations, joins the UN in advocating for a separate state for uh, Palestine. Mm -hmm. So these are, and, and it's just so tragic to think here it is, it's 50 years later, we're no closer to resolving any of these problems than we were okay. then. If anything, we're farther away. Um, should we get into the time trap? Let's go. <laughs> um, we start off as always with a log and we start off as always with a star date. Scott, what can you tell me about this star date? Well, the star date that, that Captain Kirk says is 52.2. And I went, wait a minute. So I paused it, and I backed it up a little bit. Like, did I hear that wrong? And he goes, Captain's Log, start at 52.2. And I said, there's no way it could be 52.2. Because later in the episode, we hear the captain say the star date to be 5267.6. So because Shatner, William Shatner, was recording his dialogue separately, he probably just messed up and just forgot to say the whole star date. But the actual full star date that's used in the time trap is 5267.2, which means that like many episodes of the animated series we've covered so far, Steve, this takes place in between the original series live action episodes, The Empath and The Mark of Gideon. Interesting. Um, and what we hear is that we're heading into essentially another kind of Bermuda Triangle story and that there have been a bunch of lost ships. And naturally, what do we do when we find ships are disappearing? Let's go exactly where they were. <laughs> Always a good uh, plan. And who do they run into but the Klingons? So talk about, Bob, the, you know, the, the doing an episode with the Klingons and the Klingon, you know, the uh, Klingon warship. Uh, the Klingon uh, uh, warship was based as close as uh, I could do it on uh, the original TV series, but also uh, on the model that I had made. And so it wasn't used early on because nothing like that uh, appeared moving around in title sequence or any other 
requirement. So they didn't have to draw it before I got there. So I, I was the one that did those drawings. And they're pretty much what I felt it should be based on Certainly. what had already been established, which was my approach to all of the ships until I was encouraged to go off in other directions. I started out drawing things that looked like other versions of Starfleet ships. I drew things that had two nacelles because I knew that was essential to warp drive and um, that, that sort of thing. And also the uh, brief interiors that you see of the Klingon ship are based on what was shown in the original series. And we have a quick battle with the Klingon. We open fire with our phasers, and the Klingon ship disappears. Any sensor analysis on that wavering effect just before the ship disappeared? The sensors are still not registering normally, sir. But I would venture the theory it has something to do with the many ship disappearances in this area. Yeah. You yeah, think? It sure does. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like the uh, the Tholian space. Yeah. Uh, you know where the uh, where this is this is a, a little more dramatic because at least uh, the crews of the Klingon vessel and the Enterprise uh, don't start uh, killing each other in the process. Unfortunately, after that Klingon ship disappears, two more ships uh, show up, and Kirk says, "Mousetrapped. If the first ship doesn't succeed in blasting us out of existence, they have two backup ships to do the job." Tactically well planned. I love that the, the you can hear the urgency in Captain Kirk's voice. I feel like I'm just making an assumption that when William Shatner read this script, he probably went, this is pretty good. This is a good one. So he gave it, he gave it his all on this one. And I think that really comes through because by this point, Bob, in the in the, the production of the animated series, you know, they weren't all in the same place recording their dialogue. They were recording it separately, sometimes not even at filmation. But what was it like, like, you know, after working on the animation, when you went back and you watched the episode and you heard William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Nichelle Nichols doing the voices that you heard from the original series? It's, it's wonderful. Um, you know, I've always been a TOS person, and uh, I, I love all the rest of it, but uh, I've heard you guys talk about how important those characterizations and who those guys were written to be, as well as how they performed those characters, is still what Star Trek is all about. And to one degree or another, everything that's come since has done its best to follow in those footsteps. But it's another thing that underscores the idea that story may not be everything, but it's a huge percentage of what comes out the other end. And, um, you know, these guys uh, and gals that were doing uh, the animated series, uh, writing it, clearly were taking all of their... Uh, th even our in-house guys that worked later on the on the last several shows, they they were also very serious about trying to make it genuine, real Star Trek. I think that comes through a hundred percent. And we get a call from the Klingon ship, and they recognize the Enterprise. They know Kirk is in command. How much time do you think the Klingon High Command and all the officers who spent talking about James T. Kirk? Oh, he's probably, as much as we talk about him in a positive way, it's as much time as they talk about him in a negative too. way. 
And Kirk's trying to explain that, hey, we didn't make the Clothos disappear, and they don't believe him, and the Klingon commander says, I do not accept this. And I love Kirk's response, which is, Frankly, Commander, what you accept is of little importance to me. Enterprise out. I love that. Yeah. That is like exactly, you could just imagine just Kirk totally shrugging off any any threat by the Klingon. So I don't care what you're thinking. You know, who are a turn communications off? Well, and what I like too is that it's Kirk doing multiple things at once because while he is talking to the commander of the Klingon vessel, he is also talking to Sulu to come up with a plan, which again is, oh, a ship disappeared over there. Let's go right there, <laughs> which is what they do at Warp Factor 8. And then they all uh, disappear as well. So the Clothos is the name of the Klingon ship. So, you know, we've had many talks throughout our coverage of the animated series, Bob. And, and this is definitely a conversation that I've had many times, both on camera and off camera, with Aaron Harvey about, is the animated series canon? Yeah. And Aaron is like, like, always felt like it was. I felt like it was too. But just to sort of like really make it official. So the IKS Clothos, the Imperial Klingon Starship Clothos, was mentioned in the Deep Space Nine episode, Once More Unto the Breach. So Kor, played by John Colicos in the Deep Space Nine episode, refers to the Clothos. So it's like, okay, well, then that makes it canon. But, Steve, as you know, that is not going to be John Colicos' voice that you hear playing Kor. It is... I can't think of any actor that would do multiple voices on the animated (laughs) series. So... It's a complete mystery. It's a complete mystery. I'm going to solve the mystery for you, Steve. The voice of Core in The Time Trap is none other than James Dewan. <laughs> Wait, Scotty? <Shocker. laughs> wow. Great Scott. Great Scotty. <laughs> um, and uh, after a moment where everyone is feeling dizzy and a little disoriented, we realize that we are in the midst of what Kirk describes as... It's like a vast Saragasso Sea. A graveyard of ships from every civilization imaginable. Bob, my guess is you had a lot of fun <laughs> in this in this area. I did a lot of Xeroxing, actually, because all of the drawings that were used for the lost ships, I had already done. Right. And they were uh, various attempts to provide Gene Roddenberry with his uh, ship that he needed for the first uh, episode, uh, Beyond the Farthest Star. And... Um, you can see what my uh, design uh, problems were when you look at those different ships because I was given no direction. He just wanted something that was different. I wanted something that felt like it was part of the Star Trek uh, universe and um, because that seemed logical to me. But the more we got into it, the more he pushed to, to come up with something that... Uh, uh, was totally different from what we had already seen. And we had the luxury of time, believe it or not. I mean, it was March. Uh, the things were going to be on the air in, what, November. So um, uh, you'd think that wasn't nearly enough time to be fooling around, but I spent days uh, drawing different ships, and they would send them off to Gene, and they would be rejected. And, of course, I was young and energetic and excited, and uh, I didn't get depressed about that at all. I was drawing as many spaceships as I could and having a great time doing it. But you know what, Bob? One thing that was not rejected, 
And this was, you know, we, we taught Steve about some of the limitations of doing, doing the animated series, but one of the ways in which it, the animated series sort of gave you freedom is that like in the shuttle, uh, the hangar deck, yeah. you know, the, we only saw one shuttlecraft or one design of a shuttlecraft in the, in the original series, the Galileo. Right. Um, but in the animated series, you had different designs of different shuttles. Yeah. So that must have been fun to kind of play around with that. Absolutely. I mean, every time I was given the opportunity to do something new, that worked within the Star Trek universe. That gave me uh, a world to draw within. And uh, that's a little easier than being given a blank page and no direction. So um, I did enjoy those tasks. Yeah, so that's how we proceeded. But in terms of building the Sargasso Sea of Ships, I just uh, enlarged and reduced and pasted. And there was finally one background, or actually it's not a background. It's something they call an underlay or an overlay because it ends up on cell and gets painted that way. Uh, And then they slide it back and forth for wherever they need it. And uh, what I'm surprised about in watching the finished show is that they didn't use it more Mm. because there are scenes where you see uh, the exterior of the Enterprise and there's plenty of room for those other ships. And they should have been there uh, because some of the times it's just a black background. And Mm -hmm. it didn't really make sense to me in watching it this last time that, um, uh, that that would be an inconsistency. And why it is, uh, I think, has to do with uh, either, well, one of many possibilities, really, because balls got dropped along the way uh, on a regular basis. And we we really didn't do reshoots very often unless it was something so glaring that you couldn't live with it. I, I did not like that inconsistency about about those exterior shots. I, I think it's something we have seen over and over again in the animated series, which is a little bit more time, a little bit more thought, and the, there's just so many things to be better. And the the lack of those ships and all the background shots is is a great example of, oh, uh, this could have been a little bit better. Yeah. You know? Um, one of the things that I find interesting is something we haven't talked about very much in a while, which is that one of our discoveries from early on in the original series is that Captain Kirk is a nerd. And <laughs> that he is a, a person who, with all the swagger and all of the romance of the character is a dude that actually is super, super smart and has really, really studied everything. And we see it here because he is the one that deduces that we're in an alternate universe. And Spock's response after listening to his explanation is, your logic is excellent, Captain. Talk about, you know, (laughs) the, the ultimate compliment coming from Spock. Your logic is excellent because in the changeling, when Spock says to Captain Kirk, a fascinating ca- captain, a, a, a dazzling display of logic. And then Kirk says, you didn't think I had it in me, did you, Spock? And then he goes, no, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Scotty's excited because this is like the ship museum. He's getting to see all these ships he's never seen before, including the old Bonaventure. She was the first ship to have warp drive installed. She vanished without a trace on her third voyage. Now, the problem with that is as much as I remember seeing the Bonaventure because it looked like an older, way older version of the Enterprise, it was actually the Enterprise NX-01 from the series Star Trek Enterprise that was the first ship to have warp drive. But, you know, it's okay. You got to bend the rules a little bit. You got to stray from canon. And I love seeing the Bonaventure just floating there in space. 
And the other thing we hear is that there might be people living on these ships because we're getting life signs and energy readings. And just as we're talking about that, the Clothos shows up and we are once again in a battle. Um, and I like that they try to fire at both of their weapons go, it don't really work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then suddenly Kirk is beamed off the bridge of the Enterprise and the camera zooms in on Spock and that is the end of Act One. So Kirk being vanishing from the Enterprise, of course, makes me think of the first uh, teaser from the Squire of Gothos. Mm, sure. And uh, the, the fact that the weaponry doesn't work is sort of a reminder of uh, the ending of Iron of Mercy. But in this case, it is not because of, uh, of, of super-powered aliens. It's because of the area, the universe that they're, that they're now in. We come back in Act 2, and uh, we hear a little log from Spock, and then we cut to this strange kind of council chamber, and there is Kor uh, in the middle of it, who immediately goes for his weapon, and that doesn't work out for him. And then a moment later, Kirk appears, and we see that we are surrounded by, I will say, every single Star Trek alien. And then some. Yeah. So let's talk about the Council of Elysia, because we have the ruling council. So we have an Orion woman, a Vulcan, an Andorian, a Klingon, a Tolerate, a human, a Gorn, which is huge to see a Gorn in another episode outside of Arena, and then a few other aliens, uh, the Kazin that we will see later in the Slaver Weapon. Uh, we have an unknown insectoid race. We have a Philosian, which we just saw in the Infinite Vulcan, and uh, other identif unidentified human races. How fun was that to <laughs> do that council and hey. Uh, you know, geek out like, oh, let's bring back the Gorn, but also throw in some some exclusive to the animated series, yeah. Aliens. No, that was great. Uh, my best memory is that that's exactly the sort of thing that I enjoyed getting as an assignment. One of the things that I um, remember referencing was uh, the book that B. Joe Trimble put together that had some drawings in them. Uh, the Star and, Trek uh, Concordance. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, of course, I met her and, and visited with her, and she was a delight also. So I can't remember if that's where that first drawing of a Kazin came from, <clears throat> but I think so. I think so. Later, when I had to do the slaver weapon characters, I made them my own for that. Uh, we, uh, of course, Irv Kaplan kept the coloring uh, of their uh, fur and so on, uh, but I wanted them to have a little more stature and look a little less like uh, a pet cat. So um, that's the difference of those designs. But, um, yeah, I'm trying to remember. I was watching it uh, the other day and wondering... Uh, what the origin of um, the ones that I couldn't identify were. And, of course, at the time, I was perfectly happy to just invent something sure. to fill a seat. You know, they're seat fillers like at the Oscars. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know who the other ones were intended to be, if anyone, or if they came from another source or I referenced them from another source. They kind of look like something I would do normally and the insect one 
I think is a throwback to uh, Beyond the Farthest Star. But the the Gorn, where you like, we got to put the Gorn in. Oh, of course. Always a fan of the Gorn. So much so that when the Gorn reappeared on uh, Enterprise, right? Oh, oh, Enterprise, yeah. They did a CG Gorn on there. Uh, I thought, oh, wow, that's great. And even though it was kind of less than perfect, uh, I I just loved seeing it running around. (laughs) And now... They've done it again. Right? They did it for Strange New Worlds, yes. the new series, Strange yes. New Worlds. Very, very different than the Gorn from TOS and, and Enterprise. That's Which for is sure. perfectly, I mean, you've got a whole world full of these creatures. There are going to be a lot of different versions, right? Absolutely. It's amazing how much affection you can have for a character that appeared in one episode of a show. Yeah, yeah. And people just love the Gorn. They really, really have, you know, care about the character. Um, what we find out is that this is these. There have been people trapped here for thousands of years, and despite the fact that there are all these different species, they have managed to create a society based entirely on peace, and everybody is working together, which is pretty cool. Under our law, you as ship captains are responsible for the behavior of your crews. Should a crew member, with or without your knowledge, engage in any form of violence. Whatsoever, you will suffer the ultimate penalty, total immobilization of your ship for a century. So it's a peaceful society, but the consequences of violence are pretty darn severe. So that's our situation. We're trapped in a really peaceful place where everybody's getting along, but we are trapped. What does Captain Kirk say? He says, we are getting out. Yep. He's like, there's no way we are staying. That, to me, is a true Captain Kirk moment. And Shatner, the way he says it, just he's like, he's committed. He is committed to this episode. And once again, the dilithium crystals are draining and yeah. we have a ticking <laughs> clock. So once Four again, days. So we got four days to figure this out. And on the Klingon ship, they're doing the same thing. They're trying to figure out how to get out. And then we cut to what is sort of a seer. I think the character's name is Megan. Megan. And Megan is uh, seeing what they're trying to do on both the Klingon ship and on the Enterprise. What, what I like here, and this is more of the world building. I mean, what's amazing about the original series is that this was the first Star Trek. Like, this is, it's history. Everything about the original Star Trek is history. Uh, not just because it had never been done, but also because of all the the world building that went on from the very, very first episode. But even, you know, with the animated series, you, you continue building the world. Uh, I loved discovering that the Klingon F2 graph unit, which powers the Klingon vessel, is similar to the warp drive on the Enterprise. Hmm. I thought that was really cool to learn that. That's cool. Um, and we're in the briefing room, and we're talking about whether or not this is possible. And it seems at this moment that it's not possible. And there's a thing that happens uh, on, the, on the the monitor, which is we're looking at the Klingon ship on the sort of triangular-shaped monitor. And there's a thing that happens that, A, I think is really cool, and B, doesn't actually make sense, which is that I've, I know I've said it before, but I love the design of that triangular monitor because it allows the audience to see what everybody is seeing while they're looking, while their faces are still towards camera because they're looking at the other sides of this monitor. So I think that design is really cool. But what we see, because we see for the first time kind of two different screens of it, and we see the Klingon ship go from one screen through the border and then appear on the other screen. I saw that, yeah. <clears throat> which actually, which is really, and it looks really cool. And it do, and it also doesn't make sense because the whole idea is that the three monitors are showing exactly same the screens. same thing. Yeah. 
But I thought I did think it was a really cool effect that we could never have done in 1966 on the original series, but can do in animation. And what we hear is that Core is going for it. They don't think it's going to work, but he is willing to jeopardize his crew and his ship unnecessarily. All power has been diverted to the engine, sir. We're picking up speed. So the Klingons pick up speed. They head towards the vortex. We got some crazy music and nope, <laughs> it's not going to work. You were right, Spock, but I almost wish they'd made it. But watching this gives Spock an idea, which is basically if we could combine the two ships, maybe together we could get out, or separately we can't. See, what I love about the animated series is that, like I said at the top of the conversation, these characters are still acting in character like they did in the original show. Yeah. So, you know, you have a situation where the Enterprise is trapped and these aliens are telling the Enterprise, you're trapped, and Kirk is saying, we're, we are getting out. That is very true to Captain Kirk. But they're still in a situation in which they are, seems pretty hopeless. But who comes up with the possible solution? Spock. So when you're watching this, and clearly you love the original show as well, and you're seeing Kirk and Spock and so on and Scotty, you know, complaining about energy, we're losing energy and whatever. Like, how does it feel for you to to have worked on a show and like this and, you know, taking it so seriously like, like the other animators did and then hearing and seeing these characters act in character, treated as seriously and with such care that they gave to the original show. I, I couldn't have been happier, honestly. And um, it was one of those situations where I, I felt blessed every day I got to work on it because I knew that despite all of Filmation's drawbacks in doing economical animation for Saturday morning, it was going to turn out just fine because of the things you enumerate. And uh, every time a script came along that was uh, uh, on, on the money and, and clearly part of the original series in terms of uh, how it was written, how the characters were motivated, how they interact with one another, which is just one of the major glorious parts of the original series. I was, I was an extremely happy guy. Uh-huh. Of course, I wanted 100%, you know. Right. Uh, so <clears throat> the first time I saw the first show on the movie Ola, it was like, oh, it's not going to look like the Fleischer Superman after right. all. So we're just going to have to live with that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're on the Klingon vessel, and we've all agreed, and the science teams are going to work together. And then on our way out, Mr. Spock gets very chummy with a couple of Klingons, puts his arms around them, and says, I cannot tell you how impressed I am by your splendid spirit of cooperation. Mr. Spock. Forgive me, Commander. I was overcome by the moment. So just like the original series established the Vulcan mind melt, which is an extremely intense, fully committed and immersive experience for a Vulcan to do, what the animated series was, it created the Vulcan mind touch, which requires far less concentration, but is still able to give Spock an idea that winds up saving the Enterprise. So this is, I will say, the one story flaw in the episode, which is that 
what they're what we later find out is that when he did this, he caught wind of the fact that they are going to betray the Enterprise and try to destroy them. The only problem with that is those guys don't know that yet because Kor hasn't said it to anybody. Oh yes, um, and to, which he does in the next moment of the scene where his you know uh, lieutenant commander or whatever says, "Hey, why are you co cooperating with this Kirk guy? We know that you hate him." And he says, What would you think if the Enterprise suddenly disintegrated after our dual ship had pierced the time continuum? I would think my commander had maneuvered brilliantly. So this is their plan to betray the Enterprise. That is the end of Act 2. Uh, Act 3, we come back. We're, we're getting close to finishing the job. And one of our red guys finds a Klingon where he is not supposed to be. And he gives an explanation that he got lost. And Spock, again, very, very chummy, says, Where are you supposed to be working? Engineering Deck 5. Captain, allow me to escort this young man to his work area. Really, really good point that when Spock put his arms around the Klingons the first time, he shouldn't have known right. that, that the Klingons were But this were one, try. he would. Now he would. Absolutely. So maybe there wasn't a flaw after all. Because this is the one, this is the the Vulcan mind touch where Spock actually learns that the Klingons are going to try to sabotage the Enterprise. See how into it we get? <laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> um, and McCoy is concerned about Spock's behavior because pretty much all of this is riding on Spock getting everything right. So Kirk says he's going to go talk to him. Everything seems to be in order, but then you're the only person who can really be sure. Isn't that right, Spock? Yes, Captain. Why do you ask? And this is when Kirk asks about what the heck's going on with you, dude, and finds out, and this is where Spock says, But even though contact was necessarily limited and their minds were suspicious, I picked up some indication they are planning to sabotage the Enterprise. Yeah, I think this episode has multiple interesting things going on simultaneously and navigates them really well yeah, yeah, uh, for, for a short episode. Yep, for a short episode. And then we see... Uh, handing a tiny little capsule to one of the Klingons. By my calculations, the capsule will be triggered the exact moment our dual ship reaches warp eight, approximately three minutes after the time barrier is pierced and we have disengaged, the Enterprise will disintegrate. We see the device given to a female Klingon. Now, up to this point, we had only seen a female Klingon twice. And, and both of those were in the same episode, Day of the Dove, from the third season. One of those female Klingons, we just see her step off the transporter before the Klingons are taken to, uh, uh, you know, uh, accommodations. But the other one, Mara, uh, played by Susan Howard, who was a guest of ours on Enterprise Incidents talking about Day of the Dove. Oh, so, so you got to, you know, br bring a third uh, female Klingon into the proceedings. And I like that she kind of has a bit of an afro because this is 1973, and I thought that oh, was yeah. kind of a cool look for her. Um, and what we hear is we're going to have a big celebratory dinner with some of the people from Elysia, I think is the name of this community. And it's the scene starts with our Orion woman basically finishing a dance move. Beautifully done. I thank you, Captain. You have seen the dance of Orion women before. Many times. And, you know, knowing Kirk as well as we do, I mean, Bob, you must have just gone like, yeah, that that Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> well, right on the money. <laughs> well, and first of all, we've heard some stuff about Orion women's dances, and we've seen Kirk see two of them in the original series. 
One in the menagerie where he's watching the film from Talos Four, and one in Whom Gods Destroy. Correct. That's right. So he that's that's canon. <laughs> yeah, that's right in there. Although the Whom Gods Destroy dance is really not as good. Not, not Su- something to be re- Susan Oliver, what she did with that dance in the cage is right. legendary. Yeah. And then there's this moment where and I think it doesn't quite pull off perfectly, but McCoy is dancing with one of the Klingon ladies, and her boyfriend, I guess, is not so happy about it, and draws his weapon, bringing on the ire of the Elysian people. You know any form of violence is forbidden here. Your man began the fight and attempted to kill. I propose we freeze the Clothos and its crew for a star century. So the plant from Act 1 about you guys are responsible and any violence is going to result in isolating your ship for a century, now we are paying it off in Act 3. But just, again, another moment where Kirk is very much in line with the character that was established in the original series. Kirk appeals to the Council to let the Klingons stay free because if you lock them up, then we're going to stay trapped and we won't be, be able to escape. I think these are both good Star Trek messages. Both, we have to work with our enemy in the first place. That's classic, classic Star Trek because actually our needs and uh, are aligned. And second, we have to look out for our enemy despite the fact that they were about to shoot Dr. McCoy because we have to work together for the common good. And the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And they and the Elysian people say, okay, good luck. You'll be needing it. And we see the two ships uh, linked. And by the way, I, I actually really agree. It would have been really cool if they, one was upside down. I think that would have been neat. So, um, so but I want to ask. So when, you know, the idea that the Klingons, the Klingon starship and the Starship Enterprise are going to be linked together. Did you try different versions? I can't honestly remember. I, I, I wish I could, and I wish I had access to uh, the drawings that I did at the time. It's just that the fact that that's how I saw it in my mind's eye before I watched the show, and it wasn't until I watched the show that I rec- recognized that that's not what happened, uh, it leads me to believe that it was something I tried to do. Because in Aaron Harvey's book uh, about the making of the animated series, there is a, a sort of outline of the Enterprise connected to the Klingon, you know, just like the the way that you we see it in the episode where the Enterprise is on top and the Klingon is on the bottom, but instead of showing it si- on the side, you see it from reverse, like you see the back of the Enterprise connected to the you know the the Klingon. Show. It's a, it's a it's a rear view uh-huh. of that image, right. but it wasn't used in the series, but it is in the book. Uh-huh. So so like maybe it looks like you might have tried some different. It, it could very well be. It's just no longer in my 76-year-old brain. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a thing that I want to point out, which is just how good screenwriting works, and that is this idea of plants and payoffs. And we t- talked about them before on the show. But the basic thing is you don't want something to swoop in at the end and save the day because that's DSS Machina. Anything that's going to be, you know, it's the classic, which I think is Chekhov. If you're going to shoot a gun in the third act, you need to introduce it in the first act. And anytime that it's introduced in the first act and you go, oh, I bet that's going to come up later, that was a bad plant. Good plants are ones that you don't see coming. So in Jaws, when they're loading up the canned, you know, the, the compressed air, 
it falls and Dreyfus yells, oh, be careful with that. That's compressed air. It could blow us all up. Which, by the way, totally not true. Compressed air does not blow up like that. Those tanks are safe. <laughs> but the plant is great. Yeah. And here we've planted early on Megan the Seer, who can tell what the plans, what's going on in the Enterprise and Klingon ship. But we introduce it in Act One as a threat. Oh, they're going to try to stop us. So we're not thinking about it in Act Three when it's actually she who realizes the plot against the Enterprise and she calls up the Enterprise and says, hey, they planted a bomb and this is where they planted it. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent point. Um, and so Scotty and Spock run off to find this little capsule as the Enterprise is accelerating towards the barrier. We get, get to the barrier, approaching warp eight, and we know that warp eight is when this capsule is going to get triggered. Spock grabs it and runs over to the eject box. I'm glad we have one of those. Sends it out. It explodes. And the Enterprise is safe. The eject box was used in Conscience of the King right? Right. when the phaser the was on overload. overload. So, yeah. so uh, again, you know, this episode goes by very, very quickly. It's brisk. And like you point out, Steve, it's very, very well written. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I think The Time Trap is probably one of the best episodes of the animated series. What do you think? Well, I was extremely surprised because it's not the one that really stuck in my memory. And it's probably because I had less to do with that than I did other ones. I mean, there's not a a lot of flamboyant design in it um, that I created just for that episode. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it's not one of the episodes that stuck with me. Interestingly enough, what was the name of the seer that you Megan. were just talking about, Megan? Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I designed her just from looking at the aesthetics of it and jogging my memory, which is unusual because Herb... Hazelton designed almost all the humans, including uh, Mress, who isn't a human, but um, I guess they wanted somebody else to do at least I'd love one Mress. alien. Yeah. But every now and then, he was busy doing other things, and it was uh, almost a throwaway character that would only be in that episode. So I got to design some humans. I'm pretty sure that was one of mine. You talk about episodes that that this is, is one that really sticks out, even though you enjoy re-watching it. Yeah. What episodes do stick out to you that you worked on? The, the, the more uh, elaborate, designy ones that required me to come up with settings and backgrounds and uh, a variety of alien characters or uniquely interesting ones for me, like uh, what was the mud episode with the big rock creatures? Oh, that mud's was passion. Uh, Mud's Passion. We just did that. Yeah, And and I designed the, the creatures for that, the big rock creatures, and I designed the aliens that work in the mines there that look kind of like bears. And... Um, that, that sort of thing was fun for me. BEM was fun for me because I got to design BEM and I got to design the lizard people and uh, some of the locations there. So I felt like I was uh, more involved with some of those uh, episodes. Um, certainly the, uh, what's uh, the ambergris element? Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, very much involved with that. Although that was another case where uh, Herb, designed the fish people. And I had a, a bit of a discussion with uh, Hal Sutherland on that one. I, uh, I guess it's because I was only a kid. I could go 
I felt like I could go talk to him and tell him what I thought and, as if he cared. And he didn't at all. Uh, uh, but I would say uh, I, on that one, I said, well, why aren't they turning into poor? Why they should be like dolphins, mammals, right? Humans, mammals. No, uh, not going for that. It's like with the infinite Vulcan. Um, I said, his uniform's growing. It shouldn't grow. He should have something else to wear when he's gigantic. Uh, go away. Go to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> one, one episode I, I do have to say uh, that I'm really looking forward to doing. It's one of my favorites of the animated series. It's also the last episode of the animated series, which is the counterclock incident, where the Enterprise crew gets younger. Uh, oh, yes. And we also see... The first captain of the Enterprise, Robert April and his wife. I designed him. See? Robert April and his wife. Yep. The young uh, kids, though, uniquely were designed by a gal who was normally a cleanup artist, uh, Crystal Russell, because she later uh, did some animation for Flash Gordon that was just wonderful. She was very good. She went on to do uh, Richard Williams' uh, uh, Raggedy Ann and Andy, mm. very very talented. But she did the young and younger, right? They get younger and younger. Get younger right? and Down younger. Yes, that's right. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she did that stuff. I, I thought that was marvelous. You know, one question I I do want to ask because I I I I think you know the Aaron and Rich talked to us uh, when we did our preview. The scenes of the Enterprise in the animated series. Yeah mirror the angles that we see of the Enterprise in the original series. Right. The the flyby from sure. left to right when the Enterprise is orbiting the planet or it's going off and you just see the rear view of the Enterprise. Uh, how was that done to such a specific where the Enterprise looked exactly the same in the animated series? Rotoscoping. Rotoscoping. Yeah. But it's great. Yeah. yeah. It looks yeah. great. I love the way the Enterprise I think looks. it was... Uh, you know, Filmation would resort to rotoscoping once in a while when it was a stock footage that uh, they felt they couldn't get good enough any other way. And, of course, animating the Enterprise in dimension of any kind. Uh, but the, the, the flyby that, uh, you know, just drags through left to right, that's just a single cell. Yeah. And, of course, it's... Rendered beautifully. Beautiful. Uh, Paul Zander, I think the guy's name, his name started with an X, uh, was uh, the key painter on that. Uh, worked for Irv. Uh, and there was this bay of guys that painted backgrounds. and uh, But he, he was the startling one. So when you ever see a background that has this wonderful reflective light, and rendering that looks real slick and pretty, almost Sid Mead-like, that was Paul. And wow, he was a big uh, uh, contributor to the success of those backgrounds. They stand out, too. And like, I'd, I'd be curious if the ones, because there were some in this episode, it was like, that Enterprise looks really good. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and other ones look like they didn't have the time, you know. Almost never did they use anything that they hadn't used before. Uh, rarely for an episode would there even be a reason to draw a new angle. Right. Uh, and they'd never do new animation. You know, it was always either dragging through left to right or zooming in. 
But and then the other thing they would do, and you see it in the main title, is it was a held drawing. I mean, it's not a held drawing, but a single drawing that uh, they would do two passes uh, in the camera. So it was a double exposure, and they'd leave a path in the star sky uh, that's just all black. So a second exposure of the Enterprise with the camera moving in on it, which is essentially how they did a lot of Star Wars and even uh, uh, Star Trek uh, um, uh, is how they accomplished that, you know. So, listen, just the last question for you really is over your career, all the work you've done in animation, I mean, the, the shows I mentioned at the top of the conversation during the introduction, it's just the tip of the iceberg. How does working on the animated series of Star Trek rank? How proud are you of your work on it? And how proud are you that people really love the animated show and think it's, uh, it's, it's been unfairly overlooked because the quality is just absolutely great? And it is in the end at Star Trek. Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's been lovely over all these years seeing it gain uh, it, uh, a more and more uh, exalted uh, reputation. And, uh, of course, at the time, as I briefly referred to earlier, there were things about it that troubled me because of what I had in my head versus what ended up on film. But that's all visual stuff, you know. Um, and that's really where I come from anyway. I'm all about, how does this look, you know? But uh, ultimately, I can't be prouder of it. I mean, the fact that I got to work on something that's so important to uh, American-created mythology. Yes. You know? The fact that it's so solid and powerful and that Star Trek itself has so much substance to it. It's by no means space opera. It's by no means some other genre that just has uh, zap guns and uh, and uh, spaceships. And Can't imagine aliens. what you're referring to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been proud of just a handful of things that I've worked on since then. But this one, of course, I was hugely uh, fortunate. And a very brief story, you may not have time to include this or not, but... Um, while I didn't work directly with Shatner uh, on that series, uh, later on when I was directing episodes of Hercules for Disney, uh, we did an episode with Shatner where he played Jason uh, of Jason and the Argonauts. The fellow that wrote it, I can't remember his name, he was a Star Trek fan. And so he wrote a script where Jason was essentially Captain Kirk. Mm -hmm. And Hercules signed on with Jason, and there's all kinds of little Star Trek Easter eggs in that uh, episode of Hercules. And Shatner was great. He knew what we were doing. He didn't object. <laughs> he just had a good time. Uh, and uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. If you got Disney+, Plus, that episode is there, and it's called Hercules and the Argonauts. That's really cool. Uh, that uh, is amazing. Yeah. I I was lucky again. <laughs> I got to do that. Um, <laughs> I don't have a lot of final thoughts about the time trap other than that. I mean, is it a deep show? No. Does it have a lot of emotional content? Not really. 
Is it a tight adventure story that beginning, middle to end is entertaining? Yes, it absolutely is. I enjoy it a lot. That's I my agree with you completely. I, I, I said at the top of the conversation, it felt like uh, the Doomsday Machine. I mean, it's not like up there in terms of like the greatest Star Trek episode ever done, but in terms of the pacing, the, the excitement, uh, just being well-written. It does work on every level, and I know that I've I've certainly there have been other episodes of the animated series that I have graded on a curve. I don't feel like I need to grade this one on yeah. a curve. I think it's just a really really terrific episode, and uh, it was also I just had to point out the final time Steve and Bob that we see the Klingons looking basically like humans. Because oh. the next time we see the Klingons, and every time after that, they will look like they did starting in Star Trek The Motion Picture, a completely radical change from the original show. And that would evolve over the course of Next Generation and into the newer shows like Discovery. The only other time we would see the sort of human-looking Klingons again was in a time travel episode called... Trials and tribulations. That's right. So that is what we think of the time travel. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for Enterprise Incidents. But if Twitter's more your thing, it's Enter Incidents. If you're into Instagram and you want to post some pictures about Star Trek, well, you might as well tag Enterprise Incidents. And you should subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Spotify or YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you happen to be on YouTube, leave a comment. We love reading them. We try to respond when we can. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. They mean a lot. And if you want to support the show, there is a link to our Spotify, no longer Anchor, but Spotify for Podcasts. And you could support the show for as little as 99 cents a month, as much as $9.99 a month. And we very much appreciate it. And if you want to reach me, I'm SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And on my other podcast, The Cinephiles, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S, we've finished our season of Tarantino. And we are about, as as this is out, we will have just released our an episode that will go to 11 on Spinal Tap. Oh, that's, uh, the, that's going to go to 11 for sure. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And like I said at the top, at the very top of this show, this is our 100th episode of Enterprise Incidents. Every step of the way, I have just enjoyed working on Enterprise Incidents immensely, enjoyed working with my great friend and partner, Steve Morris. I am so grateful for everything you do for the show, all the editing, that is all you, my friend. And also, thank you to you, the Enterprisers, who have been with us every step of the way, who have discovered Enterprise Incidents along the way and then gone back and binged. That is absolutely something you should definitely do. And like Steve said, Make sure you support us by going to Apple Podcasts. If you are proud to be a part of the 100th episode of Enterprise Incidents, show your support by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a review for Enterprise Incidents on Apple Podcasts. That really means a lot. And like Steve said, uh, look, we love doing this, but you know, it does take a lot of time and anything you can do to uh, support us by making a generous donation through the Spotify link, that would also be very, 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 very much appreciated. Bob, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show. You've been a great guest, and I just love hearing the stories of how this show was put together. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I just had a grand time. Well, thank you. I was it. Thank, I mean, really, this is one for the books. And thank you so much for being aboard Enterprise Incidents. So, 
Thank you again for listening. Make sure you share Enterprise Incidents on your various social media platforms so you too can help get the word out about Enterprise Incidents and go back to the very, very beginning and enjoy Enterprise Incidents or listen to it again. And coming up next on Enterprise Incidents is an episode that our guest today did mention. It is the Amber Grease Element. That is next on Enterprise Incidents. So please join us. And until then, keep going boldly. <laughs>